When religion is a pure, personal devotion to the living God, it generates a contagious excitement about worship and a practical concern to help others in distress. But when it degenerates into the rigid keeping of rules, rituals, and traditions, it becomes hateful and can even murder. Our Bible teacher, Dave Wurtzen, begins today's encounter by challenging us to think about both the positive and the negative implications of the word religion. Evangelicals like to say, we're not into religion, we're into relationship. I think we need to be careful that we don't always use religion in a negative sense. Let's think about some of the good ways that we can use the word religion. In fact, one of the Greek words that would be translated religious is a word that basically means to have a wholesome, strong piety in your life. I can give you an example of that in the book of James. James chapter 1 says, pure religion is this. You remember the verse? Pure religion is this, to visit the orphans in their distress and the widows, to care for the needs of orphans. We're not just to think in terms of just specifically orphans, but anybody that has need. We should be known throughout this entire area as the body of believers that meets the needs of the needy. Now that is a very important part of religion, and the unbelievers out there recognize that. Some of my unbelieving friends realize if you're a follower of Christ, one of the dominant things that it should mean is if they want to find out somebody that they want to give a Thanksgiving turkey to, you call believers. If there's somebody that has a need for someone to stay in their home because they can't meet their needs themselves, you call believers. The tremendous, tremendous thing, religion, when it's caught up in meeting the needs of people with needs. In fact, I promise you, I believe that above all the programs that we could be involved in, above all the hype, above all the advertising, if we as believers visit the orphans and the widows and meet their needs and provide homes for the childless, and if girls can come and instead of having an abortion, we can be a haven for them, that we can make it possible for them to be able to have a child and for the needs of those people to be met, we're going to have a good testimony with unbelievers. Religion can be used of that kind of a thing. And that's good. Religion can mean piety in action. It can mean godliness fleshed out in good deeds. It can be the Samaritan that went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and did not pass by. That's a good use of the word religion. The Samaritan was godly. But in the story of the Good Samaritan, we're introduced to another kind of religion. And it's a very powerful, dominant thing. And I want you to think with me very clearly today, because I'm going to talk to you about probably the greatest threat to true biblical faith in Christ that's on this planet right now. We often talk about secular humanism. Secular humanism is small potatoes to what I'm going to talk about. Secular people, when Jesus was on the earth, gave him very little trouble. The people that didn't believe in God at all, 
that were into far out kinds of Eastern religions and into kind of occultism. They really didn't give the Lord nearly as great a problem as what I'm going to talk to you about today. As we begin to enter on a transition period in the life of Christ, we are beginning this week to turn our face towards Jerusalem. We have gone through the birth of the Lord. We've seen the Lord baptized. We've seen Him tempted in the wilderness. We have seen His teaching. We've spent many months really dissecting the, His teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, trying to get into our hearts the teaching of Christ. Then we entered into a phase of Jesus' impact upon the world. And we have studied together His impact upon the sickness and disease of His day and, and His power over demons and His power over death, His power over nature. We studied together about the transfiguration. We saw a glimpse of the kingdom. But now we leave Him glowing on a mountain in the glory of His kingdom and He comes down off the mountain and He faces a tremendously antagonistic world. And what we want to expose is the bedrock of the opposition against Him. And the main opposition against Jesus was not secular humanism. It was not atheists who didn't believe in God at all. You know, the essence of the opposition against Jesus were people that believed in God with their lips very strongly. And they were the power religion of the day. They were the accepted religion. If you went to a town in Palestine and said, where should I go to synagogue to be accurate? you would be given the name of one of these places. And the leaders of those groups were the ones that had all the major opposition against Jesus. And I want you to think about religion not as acts of godliness putting our love for God into flesh that can cause us to love our neighbor, the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders, the religious teachers of the law in Jerusalem, the high priests and the Pharisees were caught up into a system. And it's going to surprise you the driving force of that system. Patriotism was one of the driving forces of that movement. We've got to preserve our nation. Now, I am very patriotic. But you need to think very carefully about uniting our devotion to God with our devotion to our country. The Pharisees did it, and a man got in their way, and they murdered him. Second of all, these Jewish leaders were very much influenced by the idea, by the reality of materialism. Underneath all their words, they liked the money. And they were the power structure spiritually of their day for money. And they loved it. And thirdly, these religionists were very much into preserving all of their religious celebrations, days, holy days, all their ceremonies. They were caught up in maintaining all these liturgical realities. That can seem very strange. Like, what would be the power in that? As some of you grow older, there's going to be a tremendous pull for you to begin to trust in religious form, in religious external ritual. It's tremendously powerful. Now, this religious system 
that was more concerned about power and money and influence than they were about the truth ended up crucifying Jesus Christ. We want to look at dissecting why did they do that? What was the reality of the Pharisaic impact upon the life of Christ? It began very early. Turn to John chapter 2. Very early in the Lord's ministry, and all the synoptic gospels and the gospel of John mention a cleansing of the temple. I believe that Jesus cleansed the temple twice. In John chapter 2, verses 12 through 22, is the first time Jesus cleansed the temple. Look what it says. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers, and they stayed there for a few days. Verse 13, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found them selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at the tables exchanging money. He made a whip out of cords. He drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers. You can just hear everything going everywhere and overturned their tables. And then he said this, get out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? In the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus says, how dare you turn my father's house into a den of thieves? Then the Jews demanded, verse 18, they demanded a sign. What miraculous sign can you show us to prove that you have authority to do all this? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. I want you to see the drama of this scene. Jesus is a rough-hoon Galilean from the, from the other side of the track. He comes into the capital city he walks into the temple, and you talk about a ruckus. I mean, he turns the tables over. He's driving cattle out of the temple area. And you want to envision a great big courtyard. And he's throwing everything out. And the Jewish leaders say, what in the world are you doing? And Jesus was exposing that this religion was much more concerned about money than it was about prayer. They are much more concerned about the exchange of sacrificial cattle and making a buck than they were about people coming to worship the true God. They were a lot more concerned about their maintaining all the sacrifices and all of those little rituals than they were about meeting the Messiah. Now that's incredible, but I want you to stop and think about that. That is something we need to ask all of ourselves. And I want you to pray for me very strongly in that area. Jesus says in Luke chapter 16, verse 14, let's turn over there. Because this thing plagued the Lord through his entire ministry. This religion that was into materialism instead of into worship. Luke chapter 16, verse 14. And we'll begin with verse 13, where Jesus makes the contrast so clear. It says, no servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and he will love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, now this is a parenthetical note, but it's powerful. The Pharisees who loved money heard all of this and they were sneering at Jesus. Look, at it, look what he says to them. You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. 
A religion that worships money instead of worshiping God is something that all of us need to open our hearts to the Lord Jesus about. Because this is what led the Pharisees to crucify Jesus Christ. And it can lead us to turn away from him. You know, just to really share where all of us are at. Do you feel any different, any more important, any more significant when you're riding in a brand new car? I drove up to the funeral and my kids have got, on our old Toyota, they've got this thing. Where they've got a Garfield stuck in the back. They've got, uh, you know, something like, what country, are you? you know, we're from Texas, what country are you from? Man alive, you talk about a progression of being in Texas. If I ever drove that back to New York on my car, it would be like visiting Jordan or something, or, or the, the bombed-out district of Israel. And somebody said to me, he said, man, you are, that doesn't look like a preacher's car to me. And I was, you know, I scratched my head and I could feel it inside. Man, I really need to do something about that. And I find myself, so I find myself driving to school and you start noticing. I never noticed cars. To be honest with you, I really had never been into that thing. But you know what I find as I get older? See, when I was younger, it's incredible. I didn't care less what things cost. I wouldn't even know what the price of things were. You know what I find as I get older? I start to know what the price of things are. Those of you that are growing a little bit older, what do you think? Now, that is nutty. Because from a, from a human standpoint, you would expect the older we get, the more we would realize, hey, this stuff doesn't really make any difference. It doesn't really make me happy. It doesn't really make me any more important. But I find that that lie that if I drive a brand new car and if I can feel that pleasure of that, man, I'll be somebody then. Man, if I, could, if I could drive up in front of the church and have a really nice car, then I'll be important. Now, you all laugh at that, but I'm just being honest with you. And you look at your own heart, and I think you'll find out materialism drives you a great deal. All of his life, Mary's dad has been used in the body of Christ to take sick, decrepit churches. When he went to Broken Bow, they had about three families, I think. His family doubled the church. The former pastor in a small town had been accused of a heinous moral charge. Great reputation for this body of believers in a little tiny community where it really makes a difference. You can't get lost anywhere. When Mary and I got married in that church, he had built it up to about 325. He had a radio ministry and God was blessing powerfully. But instead of staying with that, the Lord took him again. He goes out to another sick body of Christ. He left a very established body of believers in one of the more large towns in Nebraska, you know, like 30. No, it wasn't that small. In Nebraska, when you go from Omaha, you move from people to cows. But he was in a bigger town. And me and I scratched and said, listen, Dad, you know, you need to be thinking about, you know, security. How are you ever going to make it? He's sending letters out to try to raise support. That's crazy. That's nutty. No, it isn't. Jesus said, if we're going to follow him, we've got to be willing to give everything up. 
We've got to be willing to give it all up because we find security in Him. It's nothing wrong with saving, nothing wrong with following very careful money procedures, but don't let, ever let it have you. Mary's dad and mom are a tremendous example to us of people that have never hung on to it. They've never had it. Two years ago, I was very concerned for dad. I could see his spirit ebbing. The problems of the ministry were weighing down upon him. And his heart isn't real, real good. And I remember the depression I would feel because of that. And I'd say, Lord, what are you doing? He's faithfully served you. You know, what are you doing? Why don't you meet their need? Why don't you help them? The Lord would say, hey, man, the elders, the elders in my family keep on going. And the Lord gave Dad just a perfect setting where he's at home. How different that is from the Pharisee that wants all the gold of the temple in Jerusalem. You know, I told you about the book, A Walk Through American Evangelicalism. This liberal kid that was raised in churches a lot like ours, that went to Princeton University and now teaches at Columbia, as he made a journey through American evangelicalism, you know where his eyes saw the glory? It was in towns like Callaway. Not in the glass cathedral of L.A. Doesn't mean God can't be in L.A. But the power of our movement is among the poor. It's among those who don't worship materialism. We've often talked about the sin of immorality. Have you ever stopped to think that the same seduction that sucks people into immorality sucks into materialism? Do you realize that it's a seduction when we feel more important in a brand new car than an old one. Nothing wrong with a brand new car. Something terribly wrong with thinking I'm valuable because I drive a nice car. Nothing wrong with clothes or houses or any material things. First Timothy 6 says God has given us all things to enjoy. Something terribly wrong when it becomes the meaning of my life. Jesus was murdered because the religious leaders loved money. They were greedy. And when Jesus pointed out the reality to them, it's wrong. It'll destroy your life. When you're like JC on a deathbed in the hospital, your bank accounts mean nothing. The young people and adults, we chalk it up and say, oh, you know, Jesus, Jesus is some far-out spiritual kind of a person. That's for the really far-out person. When Jesus said, be rich towards God, don't put up your treasures here on earth, we say, ah, you know, that's for the real special people in God's family. No, it isn't. Your life will be poor at that deathbed if you're not rich towards others. The people that come to your funeral will not be the people that you gave bank loans to. The people that come to your funeral will be people that you visited in the hospital when they needed you. People that you spent time playing dominoes with. People that you went to football games with. People that you lived with that you became part of them. It's crazy the little things that become unbelievably significant. And I've never yet, never yet at a funeral 
heard any casual remarks. I love them because they were rich. Think about it. What are you living for today? The seduction of materialism is sucking the guts out of our spiritual lives. We all need to get down on our knees and say, Oh, Heavenly Father, teach me your values. I don't want to waste this life. Because if you live for money, you're on a pathway that will lead you to murder those that really follow the truth. And I will too. Materialism instead of worship, rules instead of regeneration. The problem with the Pharisees and the scribes and the elders is that they were into rules, not into regeneration. They were into holy days, external cleansing, and elite to them. Let me spell out some of those things for you. I challenge you, what I did this past week is I started reading in Matthew and I went all the way through the end of John. And what I did in every single book, I took a piece of paper and said, Jesus versus Jewish leadership. Jesus versus the religious leaders of his day. And I made note of every single instance where they came into conflict. And one of the major conflicts they had was over the Sabbath. How many of you have ever had someone say, you know, you guys don't have church on Sunday night. You couldn't possibly be a religious group of people. You just want an easy religion. Anybody ever heard that? I'll bet. Now, if the idea is, well, we don't have to have any involvement, we don't have to do anything to help people, we don't have to do anything to worship the Lord, and that's religion, then they might be accurate. You see, we're into holy days. We have an idea that today is more holy than other days. And then we want to make this day very unique, and the way we make it unique is we wear special clothes, we say special things, we sing special songs, and on and on it goes, and we eventually end up with a religious leader that wears extremely special clothes, like long gowns and everything else, and he's waving smoke and water and everything else. Now, you think that's crazy, but there's tremendous power in that. And the Pharisees were really into that. And they had a divine mandate, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Now, how did they think you kept it holy? You kept it holy by a whole series of rules about what you couldn't do. You couldn't work. So the disciples went out one day. You remember the story? They went out. It's in all three of the synoptics. They went out. And like good Texas boys that they were, they grabbed some of the barley and they rubbed it in their hands like I've often seen Al do, and they popped the kernels into their mouth. And they were chewing away on the grain. That was before oat bran was really in. I don't know whether the Pharisees were looking through the corn or something, you know, looking with spyglass. I mean, it's kind of unusual to see guys walking through the fields, but they were there. Religious people always have their spies checking everyone out. So the disciples are reading this and the Pharisees come up and say, how can your disciples do this? How can they thresh on the Sabbath? They're working. And if I were this, I would scratch my head and say, now wait a minute. I didn't see any big John Deere tractors go through the field. Back in the first century, I didn't see any people coming through with sickles. I didn't see us taking it to the floor where they would crush it all. I didn't see any of that. All I saw was a guy that was hungry, reaching out and getting a little bit of Cheerios or Wheaties, whatever, the first century equivalent. I didn't see any work. You see, the Pharisees went from thou shalt not work on the Sabbath 
To men alive, you can't even rub grain in your hands. And you ought to read the extensive rules they've had. Religious people always have rules like that. I know some religious groups, they wouldn't listen to a word I was saying today. You say, why? Because your hair is too long. They would come down the aisle with their sears, right up, up and down. Because religious people are always into that kind of thing. Those are the things that are important. Jesus, time and time again, you know, Jesus went out of his way to heal people on the Sabbath. I say, Lord, you should try to get along with those people. You should not try to entangle them. them. A cripple sitting there, almost a plant. All the Pharisees are sitting there looking at him. Jesus goes over and said, which one of you would have a cow that fell into a ditch or a lamb on the Sabbath day? And you hear it bleeding down the pit. Oh, please help me. Bah, please help me. How many of you wouldn't go over and lift a little lamb out of that's been hurt in a pit if it was the Sabbath? And boy, Jesus had the audience because all of them could remember. They probably had pet lambs at home, like their dog, their poor little pet dog's hurt on the Sabbath. And Jesus looked at these religious leaders and he's angry. He says, you all would meet the needs of a little lamb that's heard in the Sabbath, and yet here's a cripple, or here's a paralyzed person, here's someone with dropsy that's been in agony for year after year after year. And when the Son of God reaches out and touches their hand and makes them well, you guys go out and plot my life. Do you know that that story is told again and again, and again, and again in the Gospels. Over and over again. You see what religion can do to you? Religion makes you care about rules, and you could care less about people. We need to be careful about that. Very careful. You know what else this thing about the Sabbath really tore the Pharisees up? Jesus would say this. Your sins are forgiven. He'd see someone with a very serious disease. And instead of just healing them right off the bat, he would look at them and say, your sins are forgiven. And then he would heal them. And the Sadducees and Pharisees would just scream bloody murder. How can you ever say someone else's sins are forgiven when you're sinning yourself? You're breaking the Sabbath. You couldn't possibly be from God. You're breaking all the rules of the Sabbath. And then you're a blasphemer because you say you can forgive sins. I want you to think about that. If I sat here today and you came up to me at the end of this service and says, Dave, I stole this past week from my boss. I'm in accounting. Some money came into my desk and I took $600. And I looked at you and I said, you need to take it back. But I forgive you. Your sins are forgiven. What would you think about that? Just stop and think. You come up to me. Now, I was raised with a lot of kids that used to do this. I played baseball with a whole lot of kids that would go on Saturday night so that they could start playing baseball at 6 o'clock Sunday morning. And they would go to somebody who would say, I stole some of mom's money from her wallet and her purse when her purse was, was there when she wasn't looking. Um, I shoplifted a little bit. They go right down a whole list. And a man would say, your sins are forgiven. 
And what do you think about that? You say, Dave, you don't have the right to forgive sins. If you go around, in fact, if we went over Midlothian and said, man, you need to come to our church. We've got a preacher that forgives sins. That should cause quite a stir. I'm trying to get you to feel. You read these stories. You know, oh, yeah, that's nice. Jesus forgives sins. You miss the whole point. So you get uptight with the Pharisees. You are dumping all over the Pharisees, like I am kind of today. But you don't realize what's going on. You see, they were right. If Jesus was not God, they were right. Jesus would say on the Sabbath day, your sins are forgiven. Only God can forgive sins. The Pharisees would yell, only God can forgive sins. And Jesus would look at them and say, that's the point. You're right. Only God can forgive sins. I'm God. Now that little statement right there just throw religion right out the window. You see, religion... When it, it's a pharisaical religion, it's into nice ceremonies, nice religious things. We might all know the answer. A guy told me yesterday at the funeral, I invited him to come to church. He said, man, you need to come to church. I've known you many years. You really need to come. One of your relatives come. I would love to see you come just to see them faint. And he said to me, oh, somebody has to take care of the cows so that you Christians can eat. Now, what's his idea of Christianity? You're the Christians because you're here today. And in his mind, I'm sure, Christianity is religion. It's being a member of a church and learning some nice ethical principles and raising your kids with good Bible stories. It's nice religion. That's not what we're into. You need to think very deeply. The New Testament presents a man that would look at a sinner and look at them right in the eye and say, your sins are forgiven. Even in his weakest moment, he said to the thief on the cross, you're forgiven, you're going to be with me in paradise. Religious people that are into holy days will miss that. One of the things that I've been crying over this past year is that's really what the gospel's about. And unbelievers across this land think that the Bible's about haircuts and going to church a million times a week, not doing this, not doing that. It, they think Christianity is a million things. But very few of them realize Christianity is a belief that says Jesus is God that can forgive my sins. They were into cleansing. You can look at that later. We won't have time to get into that. They were into all the way you washed your hands, but not into having a washed heart. Look at Mark chapter 7. The Pharisees got all over the disciples, Jesus' disciples, because they didn't roll up their sleeves and they didn't go to a water basin. In, the old, in ancient Israel, they would get a water basin and you get your sleeves rolled up because in the Mishnah, they tell you how much water to pour over your hands Kids, you think your mom and dad are hard on you. The Pharisees had it down. How many cups of water you poured over your hands? You ought to read it. It's a good way to learn to wash your hands. How much water you need to use and to be you know, careful about it. They also had how far up on your elbow, how far up on your forearm you needed to come to make it really on. And the disciples didn't do that. And the Pharisees got all uptight about it. They were really concerned about whether their elbows were clean and Jesus said, hey, you need to be concerned about whether your heart is clean. 
They were really concerned about what food they ate. And I see that creeping into the evangelical church. We are fattest about food. We really are. We've got to be careful about that. Jesus, Jesus is concerned about our heart. Jesus' statement about food is, you put it in your stomach and what you don't use goes out your back end. He was very blunt. That's another thing religion doesn't like. Jesus literally did that. In fact, if I just told you point blank what he said, you would be, you know, would be stunned as an American. That's the way Jesus taught. If you think I'm blunt, you should have heard Jesus teach. He was a good Israelite, good Jewish person. He said, listen, it's not what you put in your stomach that makes you immoral. It's what comes out of the inside of your personality. So you're not going to ever conquer drugs. You're not going to ever stop being overweight. All of the things that go on and on by working just on externals. We've had some precious brothers and sisters here that are really wrestling with things like trying to help their temple to be holy by controlling their eating. It's tough. Food is tough. But the issue is not all kinds of special diets and everything else, although those can be helpful. But the root thing is that we as believers need to join with people involved in those programs and love them. You skinny people, don't criticize them. Love them. Encourage them. We need to do everything we can because we have the answer to finding peace and security deep in our hearts. Pharisees are always into condemning people about food. Let's not get into that. Let's be careful. And then finally they were into elitism. You know, the cry of the Pharisee was this. The cry of the Pharisees was this. Jesus eateth with sinners. My dad used to love to tell a story about Edith. Edith was a little girl. And one day she came running into her mom and dad. Mommy, mommy, daddy. Boy, I'm just so excited. I found out my name is in the Bible. And their mom and dad says, you know, we almost gave you a biblical name, but we didn't give you a biblical name. Edith is not in the Bible. She said, yes, it is. The preacher said Sunday morning, Jesus receiveth sinners and eateth with them. <laughs> well, there you go. You know, that's the thing that slew the Pharisees. And you know, we're into that. Who do you associate with? You know, across the area, at a soccer game yesterday, where I was kind of incognito, sitting next to a guy I didn't know. He was saying, hey, you know, there was a guy, there was a guy I used to really, really know. We used to have some good times together. But, then he got, you know what I'm talking, he got religion. See, now we don't have any contact. You know, I think sometimes it'd be really neat be really neat some Sunday morning say, we're not going to have church at all Sunday morning. We want every single one of you to get an unbelieving couple and have a barbecue and just spend time. It can't be a believer. No believers allowed. Every single one of you, me included, have to go out and find an unbeliever. No believers allowed. No fellowship with someone you know that, that's a believer. But you've got to get a rank unbeliever. In fact, the ranker you think they are, the better it is. And spend some time with them. Be great. 
I would challenge us. Let's pray. We have got to come up with ideas to eat with sinners. If we don't, we're not following the Lord that we believed in. In the high school, the dividing lines that take place between the straight kids, the down and outs, the kids that are out. The Lord calls us to identify, to try to reach out, not to associate and do the same things they do, but to associate with those that are unstraight. As adults, we need to do the same thing. Let's pray about it this week. I bet you there's some unbelieving friends that you haven't contacted in a long time. Call them. Talk to them. The Pharisees were all into elitism. They only stayed with their group. And what happened to the whole thing? They charged Jesus of blasphemy. I want, I'd really encourage you to read through those Gospels, see what they called Jesus. Number one, they said he was a blasphemer. They would have been right if he wasn't God. How many of you have ever been mocked because you're a follower of Jesus? How many of you have ever had somebody say, you illegitimate? Anybody ever had that happen? How many of you have ever been accused? Somebody said, you illegitimate? Because you're a follower of Christ. You know they said that about our Lord? They did. One of the dominant things the Pharisees said when they got angry, you are an illegitimate. We're sons of Abraham. At least we're not. You're going to follow him. We should expect that kind of reaction. You know what else they call him? You're demon-possessed. Jesus literally, no fun. No joking aside, the Pharisees in Jesus' day said, Jesus is illegitimate, he is demon-possessed. The third thing they said about him was, they said that Jesus was insane. You know, his own family joined with the Pharisees and said, we need to put this person away. Now, we need to be ready for that. Religion, religion, as we talked about it today, is a power system is going to call us blasphemers, it'll call us insane, it'll call us demon-possessed. And what we need to cling to is that Jesus is the truth. I close in John's Gospel with John chapter 10. Let me just tell you John 10, 20, quickly. You say, Dave, this is a pretty discouraging picture. If it's that cunning, if it's that difficult, what chance do any of us have? You've got all the chance in heaven and his chances are fulfilled 100% of the time. He said, David, this is very subtle. Materialism, rules instead of regeneration, stresses on a holy day, external cleansing, elitism, this religious stuff really gets heavy. How can we ever have victory over all this subtlety? Caiaphas was the epitome of the religious person I've been talking about. His grandfather, Annas, was the biggest conniver you could imagine in religious Judaism. Caiaphas stood up at a meeting when they were getting together to figure out how to murder Jesus. They were getting the whole plot together, how to crucify him. Caiaphas said this, It is not expedient that our whole nation and our temple should be destroyed, that we should lose our people, our nation, and we should lose our temple. It is expedient that one man should die for the people. Caiaphas meant by that this. Remember I told you that when patriotism and materialism and power all get religiousized, it becomes very dangerous? This is what Caiaphas was saying. We need to murder Jesus. It will be ethically right 
to murder Jesus because the end justifies the means. And if we don't take Jesus' life, there's going to be a big movement. There's going to be a tremendous messianic movement in our land. The Romans will come. They'll conquer our people. Thousands of our people will die. They'll tear the temple down and we'll lose everything. So I know he's an innocent man. I know he's a popular teacher. I know he's a man of integrity, but we need to murder him because if we don't, we'll lose our country and our religion. That's where religion will take you. And that's what the New Testament is about. You say, Dave, is it all going to work out? John's Gospel says an incredible thing. God inspired Caiaphas' words, it is expedient that one man die for all the people. But unlike what Caiaphas says, it wasn't to preserve the temple. The temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. The Romans did come down and slaughter hundreds and thousands of Jews, tragically. But one man did die, not for a nation, but for the nation. Not for a few people, but for all the world. And God's great plan of redemption, in spite of all of this murderous, lying, deceitful, power-hungry world, what the New Testament says, stop and think about it as we close. Did you ever stop and think that the sovereign hand of God was working powerfully to bring all this about so that our Savior would hang on a cross and one man died for all of us, for the people. That's the message we believe. And we need to follow him. Beware of religion. Be into relationship with Jesus.